This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI Senior Writer Al Castle. Happy New Year, everyone, and Happy New Year to my co-host, Brian Solomon. How's it going? Happy New Year, Al. Doing okay. How about you? Good, good. Good to be uh, back here. And uh, this week, uh, we are joined uh, by a very special guest, uh, Brandon Thurston, who is a proprietor of WrestleNomics.com and the WrestleNomics uh, Podcast. Uh, he is kind of the go-to source for uh, research analysis having to do with kind of the business side of pro wrestling and uh, even just a few days into 2021 here we've got a lot to talk about on that front so uh, welcome Brandon thanks for joining us yeah, th thank you very much for having me I've, uh, I've I've known Dan Murphy do you guys know Dan Murphy oh, absolutely he was the original yeah. uh, co-host of the PWI podcast yeah so like me I've known Dan Murphy for a long time he was involved in independent wrestling in the Buffalo area and, uh, you know, he was always the guy who, oh, yeah, he writes for the PWI, too. And, you know, he was uh, always writing a story for PWI as I was coming up through the Indies in my local promotion. And, uh, and and it just so happens that I made the PWI 500 a number of years in a row. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, good for you. Yeah, um, yeah we, we uh, like I said, we lost Dan. We didn't <laughs> Well, Dan left the magazine. Thankfully, he is still with us. It looks very happy, and and yeah. as people who leave the wrestling business do, seems more well adjusted than than ever. So yeah. I, I think I think he's catching dogs somewhere. That was his job yeah. at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, thanks for joining us. Um, in, in a moment, uh, we're going to be talking uh, with Brandon about uh, a lot of subjects. Again, we're just a couple days in the year, but we've got. New Japan's biggest event of the year now in the books, uh, Russell Kingdom uh, 15. Um, some big stories coming out of that. Uh, WWE just had um, the Raw Legends Night, kind of their their latest attempt to kind of reach into the past to maybe help out um, some sagging business. And that's certainly the case with uh, what we now know is the uh, ostensibly the main event of the Royal Rumble with Goldberg taking on uh, Drew McIntyre for the WWE Championship. And uh, we'll also talk uh, a little AEW and the, the very unfortunate passing of Brody Lee uh, happened uh, a couple weeks ago now, but we haven't uh, spoken since then. And um, the, the Brody Lee tribute show, uh, and, and there's some business news in, in that too, and how well that, that show did, I think um, surprised a lot of people. So we'll get to all of that in a moment. Right now, let me tell you about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I'm always happy to be able to show it off and it actually just came in the mail. Uh, yesterday. Uh, apologies to subscribers. Apparently this one might have taken a little longer to reach your mailbox uh, than in the past. It is the first ever Tag Team 50 uh, ranking. The whole magazine is dedicated to uh, tag team wrestling. Uh, so much fun um, going through that. Really something different than, than we've ever done before. Now kind of com completing the trilogy of rankings, the PWI 500, the Women's 100, and now the Tag Team 50, which uh, we expect will be a staple of the magazine uh, into the future. And there's uh, a lot more in there. And we are, uh, as I understand it, kind of putting the finishing touches now on um, the big year end issue, the achievement awards, uh, as voted on by you, the PWI readers. Um, I got to get a, a uh, sneak peek at the cover and it is really cool. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm excited uh, about it. Again, we're putting that one to bed shortly. Uh, you don't want to miss any of these. And uh, the thing to do is go to PWI hyphen online.com and subscribe either to 
the digital edition or the print edition. The digital edition gets to you a lot faster um, and uh, it's the way to go. It's customized for your uh, mobile device or your computer or what have you. Um, but uh, certainly we understand if you want the old reliable print copy in your hand, uh, either way, go to pwi-online.com. And if you don't want to subscribe, even though you should, because you get big, big savings over the cover price, um, you could order just the one issue. And uh, we're, we're putting out a few extra issues uh, per year, right? I think we've gone from six to nine. So we're excited uh, about that. Uh, Brian, what, what did... Uh, what hand did you have in the, the next issue coming out? I actually didn't do all that much for it. Um, what I, I worked on the <laughs> top 10 stories with, with Harry. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, my, my columns aren't appearing as I think most right, people's columns yeah, aren't anyway. for space issue. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I contributed my favorite moment of the yeah. year, which was the undertaker retirement. Although I have to say in, in defense of myself, I chose that before it even had actually happened um, because I just thought, hey, it's going to be some really important historic moment. Having actually watched it, it made me think, hey, maybe I should have picked something else. <laughs> I'm kind of the, the same way. <laughs> Every year, you know, I get asked to do that. What's your memory of the year? And and inevitably, it's sort of like your memory of the moment. Like, well, what can I think of now? Yeah. And then later on, you know, maybe with with some focus, I think, oh, I should have done this uh, instead. I, I wrote about, and, and it certainly does stick with me, that this is the, the first year um, since really I, I became a fan, you know, more than 30 years ago, that I did not attend a live wrestling show in the entire calendar year. And I, I imagine I'm not uh, alone in that. Uh, so yeah, all, all my wrestling was virtual this year. And I did go to the Thunderdome once, uh, right. actually a couple of times. Yes. Yeah. And even there, I couldn't get good seats. If you, if you saw, <laughs> if you watch SmackDown, I was like way, way, way in the nosebleeds. So, oh, well. well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it, you take what you can get to be a part of it. Right. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the achievement awards, um, top 10 stories of the year, the unofficial official awards, the um, uh, look back on those that we lost, uh, so much in that issue. Uh, it's not out yet, so I don't want to plug it too much, but it's something to look forward to. And if you want to make sure you don't miss it, go to pwi-online.com uh, and subscribe. While you've got the computer uh, open, uh, subscribe for free to the PWI weekly newsletter put together by Kevin McElvaney, our editor-in-chief. Uh, buy a PWI t-shirt, please. You know, the holiday season is, uh, I guess, officially behind us. But if you missed anybody, um, it makes a, a great gift. We've got a few different uh, styles to choose from. Follow us on social me media, at uh, Official PWI, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. Uh, we are on YouTube. You can email us at uh, PWI at com or uh, PWI podcast at Outlook.com. Uh, for anything related to the podcast. And I think that's uh, largely it. So uh, let's let's get two things. Um, first, uh, uh, because it was such a big story and we haven't talked about it, let's talk a little bit about um, the passing of um, John Huber. Um, it, it was just awful, awful news coming. Now, now officially, did he pass on Christmas? I, I know the word came out the day after Christmas, but I don't know if it actually happened on Christmas. You know, Brian? I'm not. Not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it yes. might have been possibly even the day before. Or yeah. The night before. Yeah, but just sure. terrible, sad, sad news, especially, um, you know, all the accounts of what a great dad he was. Uh, uh, Brand, did you did you get to know him at all? Uh, did, did, working yes, in he, 
he was originally from Rochester. I, I wrestled him one time in 2011. Really? Um, but I, I spent a lot of time around him. Uh, there was a, so I'm from Buffalo, New York, and he, he was from Rochester, New York. And those are kind of two slightly separate, but, but often, you know, we intermingled those two scenes. Um, there's a time where I went to Rochester twice a week to, to train, and it was at the place that he was training at. And uh, so I got to uh, be around him a lot, um, and wrestle with him a little bit there. Uh, the, the, the school that he, he originally trained at, they had like a pipe that would hang from the wall. And after he got signed by WWE and went away, they hung his like old wrestling shoes by the laces from, from, from the pipe. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, the one time I wrestled him in 2011, um, he, he took the match on short notice and uh, we, we happened to have a main event and you know, he, he showed up there and he was already doing Dragon Gate. He had you know, been to Japan recently at that time was doing a lot of exciting stuff on the indies and you know sometimes when we get to wrestle somebody who's of a higher stature of accomplishment in wrestling than you are you, ne- you never quite know what you're going to get maybe you know maybe they want to take it easy you know they, they may not see you as you know somebody who's a big deal but but that was not the case with brody he, you know one of the first things he said to me that day was like they kind of looked at me as we were standing in the ring talking over ideas and like you probably want to tear it up huh and i was like yeah like because he was you know clearly there to to put on the highest effort that he could um but yeah I, I had a lot of uh just with the, the rochester and buffalo wrestlers hanging out together we spent a lot of time together so uh you know it was really shocking to to hear that on uh it was the 26th on it was a saturday night mm-hmm. um and i had been in touch with him a little bit in recent years too he had helped a lot of our students i have a school that i'm a part of in, in buffalo and uh, he had helped a lot of our students get extra work in WWE, and he came out to train at, at one point in I think it was in 2018. And um, he, uh, you know, it's very rare to have a wrestler who's in WWE at the time to come to to a school and like basically put on a seminar. And uh, nobody paid anything extra for it. I think he was just, you know, he was at home with with a wrist injury and he was getting bored at home and wanted something to do. So he, he was still living in Rochester at the time. So just you know, took the drive out and trained w- with the. Uh, all the young guys at our school. So yeah. Yeah. All, all the things, all the nice things you hear about him, you know, for, as far as, you know, every experience I had with him, you know, that, that, that lines right up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the worst, I mean, you talk about an outpouring and, you know, you say this whenever uh, uh, you lose somebody in the wrestling business, 2020 was such a bad year um, in, in all different ways, but also in terms of, of um, the people we lost in the wrestling uh, business, you talk about, you know, we haven't talked about Pat Patterson, who was one of the most influential figures um, early in the year, Howard Finkel, we lost Road Warrior Animal. And, and uh, I know I'm skipping over a bunch of names, but this one in particular really seemed to devastate fans in a way uh, I haven't seen in, in many, many years. And um, I'm sure part of it was, you know, that he was so young, that he still was a contemporary star, um, that he was a father of two little children. But I think it also really spoke to he was an especially decent um, a human being. And, and of all the stories that that I've heard, the ones that I've kind of been touched by the most being also being a father of two young boys was that, um, you know, at, at the end of the night, you hear so much um, uh, stories and and guys getting over and the pride they take at being, you know, the first one in and the, the last one out. And um, with with Brody, the story seemed to be that as soon as he could, he was out of there because he wanted to get home to to his kids. And and I just respect that so much. Even a guy who, who clearly took so much pride um, in his business, you know, for, for a long time was trying to leave 
what I think most wrestlers would see as a great gig in WWE, certainly a, a great paying gig, just because he didn't feel fulfilled and, and he would sooner um, uh, work hard and maybe even make work harder and maybe make less money. Uh, but, but to be an example to his kids and to feel fulfilled uh, in his job, but at the same time, seem to be able to put it in its place and to always put his, um, his wife and his kids uh, above that. Uh, Brian, does that sound about right? I mean, as far as what, what you knew about him? Yeah, it does. And, you know, he came along, obviously, after I had left uh, the company a couple of years after. I, so I never really got a chance to cross paths with him. But the thing that and I'm not the first to say this, but, you know, this one of the saddest things about this is that he really seemed to be reaching a, a peak of his career like uh, a lot of people who were fans of his and supporters backers for a long time were very excited to see what he was doing that that he was you know being allowed to perform up to his potential he was main eventing he was succeeding as a top heel he he, he was right there you know um I, I and i'm not saying you know that obviously the family stuff trumps that of course but but from a professional standpoint it is heartbreaking to see that because I was one of those people very vocally who would say it is so nice to see Brody Lee finally let loose and allowed to shine and allowed to do what he's capable of doing. And it's just horrible. You know, when you think of the potential of what, of what he could have accomplished even going forward. And I also want to say too, you know, you mentioned what a bad year it's been and how, you know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about Patterson yet or anything. And also let's not forget Danny Hodge, who sure, yeah. huge deal in the business. And, you know, he, he died was a, a day before, the day or before he was sort of like the Farrah Fawcett to Brody yeah. Lee, Michael Jackson. Right. And I mean, we could understand, you know, Brody Lee obviously is a contemporary star. He's on everybody's TV right now. It's understandable that he would overshadow uh, Danny Hodge, but, but wow. I mean, just, it's one after another. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's been rough. It's been a rough few months. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's 2020 for you. I'm glad that we could uh, turn a page. Uh, Just quickly, the last time I saw uh, Luke Harper at the time, and it speaks to again, how it's not the dump on WWE. I mean, he, he had a run with intercontinental title. The white family at one point was, was a big deal. So there was a time where he met something in that company, but last time I saw him was when WrestleMania, uh, I guess now two years ago, was in the New York area, and they did fan access uh, in Brooklyn, and I went to one of those shows, and they would, you know, they they put some matches together on uh, a fan access for 100 people sitting in the bleachers there, and he hadn't been on TV in, in months, and that's where he popped up was doing one of these matches on fan access. And it was like, and I remember seeing him walk around and I was like, really, that's what you're doing with this guy. And he's such a specimen, right? I mean, just this towering, huge athletic guy, you know, the the cliche about uh, uh, you, you would notice him at an airport. I mean, if ever that was true, I mean, that was the the case with, with uh, a Brody Lee. Um, uh, Brandon, so, so AW puts on this, uh, uh, tribute show that, you know, everybody's raving about, you know, some of like the biggest praise actually came from WWE stars. Um, everybody really was overwhelmed with the job that AW did. What's interesting was that that was supposed to be, uh, what they call the new year's bash show, whatever, a big, a big show they had lined up with, with some marquee matches, you know, pay-per-view, 
a quality uh, a lineup. They they put it on hold um, really at the eleventh hour to put on this tribute show, and the thought was, well, they're going to sacrifice something from a rating standpoint. And what do you know? That show did huge, right? I mean, it, that was one of their their best numbers of the year. Yeah, I I I think um, thinking about how how that rating went for them, and thinking about how the impact rating went for impact, I think what we're seeing is that when um, when there's big news stories, the the ratings. Uh, get a positive bump. I think when, you know, there's so much attention uh, on Brody, like if you think about the, the telecast, they didn't have to open it by explaining that Brody passed away. I think it, it's just sort of known that, you know, everybody kind of knows at that point, I think just due to social media, I think that you think about that in contrast to some of the other, you know, tribute episodes after somebody passed away, like, like Owen or Eddie, Eddie Guerrero. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, I, I expect, I was thinking, you know, it's kind of a morbid thought, like, you know, in the days leading up to that show, like, is this going to break a million or not? I think it did 777,000. So just short of a million, but it's right in line with uh, two really well-performing episodes that they did earlier in December. So like three out of the five episodes in December were in the 900,000 range. Um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, and it did, did well on the key demo as well. Um, but Dynamite has done pretty well, uh, especially in the, in the later part of the year. Uh, with they're, they're clearly, as, as you mentioned, they were supposed to do the, the New Year's Bash show, and they're, they're clearly positioning uh, certain episodes of Dynamite to be an especially big deal, which is probably an apt approach in this economic environment where the TV drives so much of the revenue uh, in terms of the, the overall revenue of, of a company in a given year. What what um, big picture? How is AEW doing um, ratings wise? I, I I know that the the thought is that they're performing well. The TNT uh, is happening, but they're they're also not doing um, the numbers they were doing before the pandemic. I guess nobody is right. Uh, but or or you tell me how I, I think how do they do for close. the year? I, I think one of the big takeaways as far as looking at twenty twenty viewership is. Everybody was hurt at the beginning of the pandemic. Everybody's ratings declined. We'll talk about the four major programs, you know, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and, and Dynamite. They, they all saw a decline, you know, in April. And, um, but, then, but NXT and AEW kind of had a bounce back. Um, Raw and SmackDown continued to decline throughout the summer until the Thunderdome happened. And that also coincides with the return of Roman Reigns. And Raw and SmackDown have been pretty stable since then. But I, I think the, really the, the big story is, is that the, the gap between Raw and SmackDown and NXT and AEW has been narrowed, especially since COVID. Um, I mean, you, you think about like the December 2019, AEW was doing some pretty weak ratings at that point, and things were at probably at their most competitive uh, between, on, on the Wednesday night programs between NXT and AEW around that time, December 2019. And what we've seen throughout the remainder of 2020 towards the end of 2020 is that AEW is, is pretty clearly outperforming NXT in, in every demographic, including total audience, but in, in every demographic, except for people over the age of 50, NXT still wins every week in, in mm-hmm. people over 50 for whatever reason. Maybe that's just out of loyalty and, and people being very accustomed to the, uh, the, the WWE brand if they're above that age. But, um, yeah, it's pretty clear that AEW is is outperforming NXT, and it's it's starting to get really close, especially with the younger demographics. So, eighteen to thirty four, you might call the young adult demographic. Some weeks, that that number for AEW Dynamite is getting pretty close to Raw, 
I remember they're doing that while going head to head against NXT, another wrestling program that I think is, it's not taking a 100% bite out of their viewership, but maybe a 20% bite out of their viewership. And I think that's something we're going to see going into 2021 is, you know, are there going to be some weeks where, where raw uh, is, is not pulling uh, the same 18 to 34 number that AEW is. There was one week uh, where that did happen in December. I think it's the week after the, uh, Winter is coming episode, the first week that they had like an advertised interview with Sting. It, it, it's a trajectory such that in 2021, AEW catches up with Raw. And it, is it is it possible? Is it likely that AEW becomes uh, the Dynamite becomes the most watched wrestling uh, TV show on cable in 2021 at some point? No, I, I would be very surprised. Um, the P50 plus the p- people over the age of 50. The number of people who, who watch WWE over the age of 50 is pretty big relative to AEW. So we think about like the, the, the P18 to 49 demographic that, that uh, AEW emphasizes so much and how it's so important to them and to TNT and to the advertisers. That makes up about half of AEW's audience. Uh, I think it makes up about a third of all the other WWE programs. So AEW doesn't have this huge o- older audience. I suppose that's just a product of W existing for a longer amount of time and uh, W uh, being able to build up so many longtime viewers. It, it's sort of like, if you think about it, it doesn't really add up to my you know, personal experience of going to a wrestling event or even say going to a WWE event. I don't look around the building when there, when there were live events before COVID. I, I don't look around the building and say, oh yeah, this, uh, this building is full of uh, you know, two thirds people uh, who are over the age of 50, which is roughly what, what their, uh, their, their TV audience is. Now, granted, yeah. uh, the TV audience in general uh, skews older because that's just older people tend to still be the ones using linear TV and younger people tend to be the ones who are using uh, digital media. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, but at long story short, I don't see AEW catching up to raw or SmackDown anytime soon. Not, in, not in 2021, just because of the, the, the bank of, of P50 right. plus viewers that they have is so big. Right, right. Uh, uh, Brian, the other part of the, the changing TV landscape, um, and I don't know if we've talked since then, in, in December, WWE did its lowest raw number ever, right? And I feel like they're they're always um, nearing or hitting some record low, but there's always some kind of qualifier, non-holiday, holiday, not against football, whatever. But this was like, you know, you don't need any qualifier. This is the lowest audience they've ever had um, for raw. Rebounded a little bit, I guess, since then. Uh, but, you know, it seemed to be the, the, the latest sort of panic button. And on Monday, what did we see? I thought it was fitting that they, they opened it with the, the H phone, the, the Hogan phone, because it, it felt like the bat phone, right? In, in an emergency, you know, break the glass um, and call not just Hulk Hogan, but Ric Flair, uh, all these different legends. And at the end of the night, um, more than just these one-off appearances, we find that Goldberg is going to be headlining one of their biggest shows um, of the year, the word is that was kind of put together uh, last minute. Uh, you know, the direction seemed to be maybe Seamus, uh, and they put that in, in the back burner to go with Goldberg and um, uh, Drew McIntyre. Um, d- does it reek of desperation to you, Brian? Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> no qualifying that either. <laughs> I'll say more than that, though. I won't just leave it at that. Um, I also think we can't forget, too, that it's partly, you know, the current TV environment that allows for these incredibly record low numbers. Like e- e- even in the darkest days of, you know, like whenever it was 95, 96, 97, 
you wouldn't see a number like this because there were just a lot more people watching live TV. So like, so it's a combination of that and just that their show has been really awful and it's been hemorrhaging viewers. So it's allowed this to be possible. But the Legends thing, look, I'm an old school guy. Everybody knows I write the damn old school column in PWI itself. But this is a very tired ploy, especially the way that WWE does it. It's like whenever they say it's a Legends show, I'm like, oh. You know, 10 seconds of Mike Rotunda in, in a hallway somewhere. Right. And the Boogeyman and Teddy Long are going to show up. Great, because those are the first two names I think of when you say Legends of Wrestling to me. <laughs> Boogeyman and Teddy Long. So it's like, you know, it's like they trot out the same like five or six people, at least change it up a little bit. Bring out some people where that'll be. Oh, my God, it's that guy. I haven't seen him. Oh, wow. You do something like that. It's just the same. It's basically like, all right, who's in the locker room that still works here that people <laughs> don't know that still works here? All right, you, you come on out. You know, it's that kind of thing. And it's very lame. And it's very tired. Not to mention half the time. And, and, and they did a pretty good job fighting it this time, but half the time they're fighting against the standard creative philosophy they seem to have with legends, which is to just humiliate them, which is mind boggling to me. Bring them out and then humiliate them. And, and you know, uh, obviously they didn't do that with Goldberg, but it's like I, I, I saw it in the way they treated Flair and things like that. And it, it happens a lot where I'm just like, what's the point of bringing legends out if you're going to make them look foolish? You know, so that it, it, it's just. You would think when they were in that kind of danger, look at what happened. And people love pointing this example. Look what happened in 97 when they were in panic mode. What did they do? Marilyn Manson. That's what they did. The, the beautiful people, right? Stone Cold Steve Austin kicking ass, taking names. They didn't bring out Baron Mikel Shakluna to show up <laughs> on that road. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is the exact opposite of what they should be doing if they want to fight this thing. Yeah, weird. yeah. It, it on top of the legends thing. The, the this is a little bit of a tangent, but but it's it struck me uh, as of late. Whenever you see um, some kind of like generic WWE promo for for the mainstream, uh, not directed toward their fans, and you see who who they highlight, right? And the, I think the one the most recently that occurred to me is is that twenty uh, twenty promo where, where they had uh, Drew McIntyre like beat up on 2020 and then 2020 21 came out to save the day. So who did they show? And they always go to like John Cena now or, or um, the rock and, and now Hulk Hogan. And so, or if you saw some generic promo of like WWE branding, that's who you see in the forefront. You see like their, their latest mobile game or something. It's the rock. It's John Cena. It's Steve Austin. Um, it, it's a bunch of guys who don't work here anymore, you know? And uh, it, it, and it's funny that they don't see that, that like, well, where, where are those guys? Where's your John Cena now? You know, and you've got Roman Reigns. These days, that's about as far as I'll go in in, in putting him even close to that category. I mean, I, I wouldn't put Drew McIntyre there. But but because of that, you'd think there'd be more of an urgency to uh, address that. And uh, e even the legend stuff aside, watching Raw, this is the first time in whatever all the years I've been watching raw that I can remember uh, doing this. So I was doing some work uh, as I often do, like with my laptop with Ron in the background and, and it just starts. And that opening segment with uh, Miz and Morrison and um, the new day, it's the first time I can remember that I had to grab the remote and just mute it because it was so annoying. It was such a bad, bad television. I was like, Oh my God. And I had to just turn down the, the, the sound because 
it, it was, you know, the proverbial uh, nails uh, on a chalkboard. Uh, uh, Brandon, what's going on over there? <laughs> you know, how, how do they think this is, this is good television? Um, I, I think Vince McMahon thinks it's good television, and I think that's largely who this show is produced for. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the Legends show, you know, it did a better rating than, than I expected it to do. It did. Is, is it clear to you that, that this was, again, break the glass, press the button, we need a rating? Possibly. Um, it, I, like, I don't know. If I would have to look back and see the time of the announcement. Maybe it was made just after that, that record low. Um, I think it's also interesting that it happens in the first week where they're not against Monday Night Football. That, that was this past Monday. So it, it, it positions them to do something special and to do something special the first week because they're not against football. So it, it, it creates a bigger bounce back. Um, but this is the first episode in, in months that uh, all three hours were over 2 million viewers. This was the highest, this is the most viewed episode since WrestleMania for Raw. Really? Um, but it's, you know, it, it, I think it, it speaks to uh, WWE's inability on the main roster, at least, to create stars and, and to invest people emotionally. Um, I think the, 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 the chronic uh, inability of WWE main roster programming to to create stars and to create big matchups that people care about has been happening for a long time. And I think it's, it's sort of underestimated at least, you know, it's, it's way below the radar of, of the stock analysts who analyze the stock. And, and maybe I think don't totally un, un, you know, understand the, the long-term risk. Not, not again, not, it's not that AEW is at any place that it's going to start taking over raw for viewership anytime soon. But if you look at like the five-year picture of this company, uh, if, if Vince McMahon stays healthy, which, wishing nothing but the best of health to convince. But if, if he stays healthy, I think it's just going to, uh, you know, you're going to inevitably see uh, WWE continue to, to decline the ratings. And, and yes, all, all TV is down, but I, I've seen that you know, in studies that I've done that Raw especially is declining worse than the rate of TV overall. And I think you're going to continue to see that over time. And uh, I think WWE is going to be fine financially, business-wise, uh, for years to come. The, the TV deals that they have right now will expire in the fall of 2024. They'll probably start talking about new deals in 2022. They'll probably you know, complete new deals in 2023. So if you think about what the, rate, what, the, you know, what the ratings and viewership will be like in 2022 and 2023, they'll still probably be highly ranked enough. And I think that's, that's the key is that Yes, ratings are down, but you know they ranked number one last night, and they usually even you know when they were having bad ratings, supposedly in, in December, they were still you know the third most watched program on cable among the key demo. Um, so it's you know this is a media environment that really values the most viewed programs, and if you're among one of the most viewed programs, especially if people feel an urgency to watch your program live as opposed to watch it later on DVR or find some way to, to watch it on a streaming device later streaming service later you you're extremely valuable and, and we saw that in 2018 where we got more than a, a tripling of their tv rights fees and i i see no reason why even on the current trajectory they wouldn't get a, at least a moderate increase in tv rights value but yeah it's it's a it's a sad and suffering brand i think mm -hmm. that that is that is you know uh, genuinely become less popular uh, since roughly 2017 or so we've seen the uh, the the decline on on an annual basis, the decline in attendance, in merchandise sales. Uh, the network is doing better uh, this year, but in 2019, there were year-over-year declines in, in every quarter. 
Yeah, yeah. It, this is supposed to be, um, you know, the, the the beginning of the road to WrestleMania with the Royal Rumble coming up, kind of their 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 busy season. Um, and historically, uh, leading into WrestleMania, I think is where they they creatively are at their best sometimes too. And I've always thought it's because it's when um, uh, the performers themselves kind of take most ownership of, of their storylines. So uh, here we are going into the Royal Rumble. You could certainly make an argument that the Legends Night was a, a worthwhile tactic in that, you, you know, you grab some casuals and then you um, you put your best foot forward and you showcase your new stars and you hope to, to keep uh, a lot of them. But again, what the show ended with was Goldberg. Uh, and, and that's what the direction they're going for um, the the Royal Rumble, uh, so so Brian, in, in general, what do you think of this uh, as a matchup? Is it worth it in that um, you know you you give Drew some of that rub of a big name like like Goldberg and and Drew hasn't had that many big names to work with since um, I guess Brock Lesnar, uh, or is it you know just uh, again on the same show that we see them close with with Goldberg uh, kind of in the spotlight we see uh, uh, Keith Lee put on a good effort and he was in the main event but but beat definitively at the end of the show uh, does, does that make sense to you uh, well it, it's short-term versus long-term kind of thinking right I mean I, I'm a little conflicted on the Goldberg thing I mean I always liked him in his prime I thought he was you know the best thing that ever happened to WCW even more so than the NWO as far as like what they could have done with him for their future and everything. But I, I don't know what the upside is here. I mean, he, he, he has uh, been shown in the past to really be beyond the age of, of being in reliable ring shape, almost to the point where he's a little bit dangerous. And I mean, some would argue he was dangerous even 20 years right. ago. Bret Hart would argue that. So, so Bret Hart certainly would. Yeah. But um, so there's that. I mean, he's got a lot of popularity, I think, still among casual fans or lapsed fans who might say, oh, wow, Goldberg. But it's like, but even this they've done before. It's like, we're going to bring Goldberg back and he's going to have like a hot shot title reign and then he's going to lose it. Like the, it, even that is not a novel idea. And I think it says a lot when I remember I was researching this for a story, you know, Goldberg was in WWE. He won the title in, I think it was 2003 when he first came in there. And then he won it again from when he beat Lesnar. When the heck was that? That was like, it was something like 14 or 15 years later. Right. And that was the largest gap in wrestling history between world title reigns of any wrestler. And Backlund. Even Backlund, it, Backlund had the record. Backlund was like 11 years. I remember that for the story. Backlund was 11 years. This broke the record. It was something like 13, 14, maybe even more. And to me, like that little statistic, it said everything. It's like how we're just, we're dredging whatever we can desperately bring and up. And now he's five years older than that. Right, right. <laughs> he's right. even older now. I, I, yeah. I mean, but still, even having said all that, the, the footnote is I still think even now, there is a certain cachet. It will bring some people to watch who maybe haven't watched in a while. It's just not anything resembling a long-term plan at all. Yeah. The the, the problem I have with it, because um, uh, I, I like the Goldberg-Lesnar uh, program, uh, especially that first match. And I loved that match. I mean, I thought it was executed. I think I remember talking to you about it way back when. Um, it was executed to well, perfection. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, that's how you do it. Um, I don't know how 
and, and obviously a, a lot of um, what we've seen of Goldberg since then has not been nearly as, as effective. And with Drew McIntyre, I, re- I really don't know how you do this. I mean, McIntyre is big. He's powerful. You know, he's got the power moves, but he's also uh, a very good wrestler and, and a guy you turn to for, for good wrestling matches. Um, I, you know, Brandon, do you, do you think that what, what do you think Goldberg versus uh, Drew McIntyre looks like? And also, what do you do with it? How do you book that match? I would, I would consider what Goldberg put over Lesnar at WrestleMania, right? Or I'm sorry, Braun Strowman at WrestleMania, yeah. right? So maybe he's there to, to to put over Drew as well. I would hope. I, I I tend to lean towards expecting that and expecting like a roughly six minute match. Well, the issue um, there, not not to cut you off, is that they seem to also be promoting, um, kind of uh, at the same time, um, Goldberg and Roman Reigns, right? That they've been they've been kind of teasing that, and that was the original match that they wanted to do at WrestleMania last year. There's some thought that they go back to it this year. So, but do, do you have um, Goldberg put over Drew McIntyre to then go on and challenge Roman Reigns? I mean, I I don't know how you do that. I, I guess like, has that been teased since. Uh since the new year though i like i know that was he's by goldberg (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know i could see that some being something that happens in wrestlemania and that that there's an angle shot for that at the royal rumble but uh i i think with goldberg it's diminishing returns it it, i i think uh to go back to to go to japanese wrestling i think like there's a lesson from what masawa did when masawa was uh the booker and the main star for pro wrestling noah and he could have elevated uh these newer stars, Kenta and, and Naomichi Marafuji, and but he saw that you know when he when he put them by themselves in the main event, that business you know dropped down, and he panicked and put himself back in the main event because he was the bigger legacy star, and and what that did was it in the short term it saved the house, it saved the attendance in the short term, but in the long term it proved that these other guys, that these new stars were not really people that you could trust and that you could get behind, and I think you know. When you when you go back to the well of these legends, so many times it kind of does the same thing in WWE. I th- I think why it's really easy to to reach for the legends is because I think nostalgia means a lot more today than it did in, in other eras because there's so much video media to consume um, and to that to to revisit so that you know and I think wrestling is more like more like a movie and a sport in this way in that you know p- people will rewatch old wrestling. So you're sort of revisiting the old intellectual property all the time. You're familiar with it. Whereas like when Bob Backlund came back, it wasn't that big of a deal as it, as it is when Goldberg comes back, or at least there's, there's more years that you can stretch across time and and get away with it because, you know, people have DVDs and now have streaming services where they're, you know, maybe they're rewatching Nitro and they're they're reliving the old uh, glory days of Goldberg. So I think that's why it's really easy to, to reach for that. And I think it's also even more hazardous to, to, uh, to reach for it as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you just touched on Japanese wrestling. Maybe that's a good transition into the uh, next topic. Uh, Wrestle Kingdom uh, mm-hmm. 15 uh, took place over uh, two nights on, I guess it would have been January 4th and, and 5th, technically. Um, uh, big headlines coming out of it. Kota Bushi's the uh, IW, IWGP heavyweight and intercontinental champion uh, beating uh, Naito. Uh, uh, Brian, um, w- w- what's the big picture for, for New Japan starting 2021? It feels like, you know, th- that upper tier, that main event scene has been 
this kind of elite club for for uh, a while now that can be hard to break into. You know, we 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 talk a lot about that uh, in in WWE, uh, but even in New Japan, you know, it it for for years it's been uh, Okada. Um, uh, Tanahashi before then Naito uh, uh, somewhat I mean he's kind of part of that that trilogy uh, Omega when he was there obviously and Ibushi's always kind of been right on the outside uh, of that trying to break in part of that was that they they didn't have him um, locked uh, into a contract and they finally uh, did last year uh, but what do you think of Ibushi as a top guy uh, in New Japan he, he seems to have a lot of the tools you know great looking guy um, super athletic, charismatic. Uh, is, is this a guy that New Japan can can ride into the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that should definitely be something they explore. I mean, I like him. I've always liked him. You know, I, I think that, and as an outside observer, to me, I, I've even gotten the feeling over the years, especially historically, that with Japanese wrestling, and it seems to be even more of a glass ceiling than even in American wrestling. Like, you have this kind of very rigid, uh, you know, circle of main event guys, and it stays that way for a long time until there's any kind of a turnover. That seems to almost be uh, par for the course. So, I mean, somebody like him could really help to kind of shake things up. I mean, obviously, he's not a newcomer to fans, but I mean, at that level, he would be. So I think that would be a step in the right direction. for sure. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, what do you think about this? And, and there have been guys who who have been kind of mixed in, and I guess the sort of like varying degrees of success. We saw Evil with a very short uh, run last year. Jay White had the title uh, briefly uh, a couple years ago, and um, seemed coming out of Wrestle Kingdom seems to be once again positioned as w- one of the top guys. Maybe also the next guy just outside that circle to really break into it. Uh, but but how is is New Japan? positioned um going into 2021 coming off of a a very rough 2020 like like everybody else uh because of the pandemic yeah well i, I think abushi i think Ibushi's a little bit older than me so i think he's in his late 30s or so so i think yeah, there's look, a, a lot older than or uh than he looks right he looks like a kid but but yeah, yeah he's already yeah. A, kind of a yeah. Yeah. To even hear that i didn't realize that yeah. he, that i mean that's not old but i mean for a wrestler it's you know a little yeah. bit sort of getting up i'm gonna look up his yeah. name He's got that cool haircut. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I I think, I think there's at least a few, few good years with him in in his prime on top as a main eventer. I think you you think about how Ibushi, it it took, you know, uh, evil won the title before Ibushi really did. I think it it sort of highlights, you know, evil is, you know, like what they call a true born. He was trained by new Japan and new Japan dojo. Ibushi came essentially from the Indies. He came from DDT. Um, so it's it's really extraordinary to see somebody like Ibushi's positioned as such a top guy for, for New Japan and to really get the sort of coronation that he got at Wrestle Kingdom. And, to, and he won the Juma Climax twice now in, in a row. And then he won the main event on two consecutive nights of the Wrestle Kingdom. So it's uh, and maybe that's just something that's happening over time where the, 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 the rigid system of um, where the, the Japanese culture and the Japanese wrestling promotions, they they value loyalty and you're going to you're you're you started with this company you're going to stay with this company forever uh that kind of thing has has become a little bit looser over time um but yeah i i think uh bushi will be a, a top star for them for a number of years until he uh inevitably destroys his neck or something um yeah. but yeah uh the there's there's some teasing that uh new japan has an english language deal tv deal yep. of some sort um 
It's not clear what that means. Um, I know Dave Meltzer has reported that he is phrasing it in English language TV deal. I think there's some some comments that have been made on, on commentary during Wrestle Kingdom that seem to use that language as well. So that sounds to me like it's going to be one of the um, one of the fasts, which which are like I forget what fast free ad supported streaming something TV. Yeah. So that that would be like um, Fubu. Fubo, Fubo, excuse me. Yeah. And, uh, or, or maybe Roku seems like the, li- the likeliest partner there um, in terms of why, because Roku is in the US, it's in Canada, it's in the UK, and those are major English speaking countries, obviously. So, it, it, and I think New Japan probably really values being able to reach a lot of people, um, but it's something that, that New Japan really needs. They really need uh, some, some media revenue and a media strategy. They haven't been on access now for over a year. Uh, and when we talk about how you know, TV rights fees are, are such a huge part, an increasingly huge part of W's business and of AEW's business, um, New Japan, that's not the case. Uh, it's a different media market in Japan than it is in the U.S. There aren't huge TV rights fees uh, for whatever reason, and uh, New Japan has a, has a really strong product. I think it's, it's compromised by, by the the uh, the time zones in terms of you can't really broadcast it live in prime time in, in the U.S. But uh, wh- where WWE and AEW are, def- you know, definitively media businesses, uh, New Japan is still a live event business. Uh, as far as I know, they're still getting the majority of the revenue from tickets. Maybe not in, in the year of COVID, but uh, pre-COVID, they're still getting the majority of the revenue from ticket sales and not from media deals and not from New Japan World, which you know probably has about one hundred thousand subscribers as opposed to like 1.5 million in the case of WWE. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, they, they continue to become increasingly popular and strong in their domestic market, but they've really leveled off in, in uh, other English speaking markets like the US because, you know, because COVID doesn't help and because of the, you know, losing their TV deal and because of losing people like Kenny Omega and Young Bucks who are huge crossover stars for them globally. Yeah. It, although it seems like maybe the the window might be open a crack to maybe work with with some uh, AEW talent. Um, you know, you, you see them doing it now with with Impact and with uh, AAA, uh, AEW, that is. Um, you, you'd think that would be kind of a, a mutually beneficial arrangement if they could yeah. figure it out. And and more and more, with all due respect to Ring of Honor, they they seem to be less relevant by the day. And you got to think that New Japan is re-examining that relationship that that was beneficial to them for a long time. But I don't know exactly what you get out of working with um, Ring of Honor uh, right now um, that you wouldn't get, you know, a lot more with with AEW. Uh, you, you touched on on uh, live audiences, and um, New Japan very much had one for. Uh, Russell Kingdom. It's it's not what we've seen in in past years, but I guess the estimate is um, on each night somewhere in that fifteen thousand uh, range, maybe a- around thirty thousand over uh, two nights, which would make either of them by far the the biggest uh, attended uh, wrestling um, events in in the world since the pandemic. Uh, uh, Brian, does that give you some some? confidence uh, expect that 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 uh maybe we're, we're back on the track to, to normalcy could that is maybe wwe watching uh because you know i last year remember they did the two nights and a few months later you saw wwe break up wrestlemania over two nights um could could they maybe have been watching curiously see them pack fifteen thousand people into a stadium and think well why can't we do that 
yeah, but I mean, they can't. That's the thing. <laughs> well, it's also Florida, though. Don't, 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 don't tell anybody in Florida they can't do anything. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that, this is a you're, you're talking about a much bigger issue here than wrestling, which is that that's happening in a country that actually like was run by sane people that implemented the rules and people followed it. And now they are where they're at and we're in complete disarray and chaos because we did not. So hopefully if we can get things more under control here, I mean, yeah, I'm sure who wouldn't want to be able to go back to, it was almost sort of like a tease. It's like for American fans watching that, you're just like, Oh my God, you want to like touch the screen. Like I remember people. Oh, I, re I remember what that was like, you know, it's so sad. And I mean, look, on, on the flip side of that, yes, Japan is also a, a much smaller country, much smaller population, uh, much, I would assume, easier to get something like that under control than in, than in a country this big with that many people. But still, I mean, yes, it is a goal of where we should be trying to get to for the wrestling business and for the whole country, of course. Yeah. Brandon, let me ask you about that. I, uh, we talked a lot about uh, TV numbers. How about uh, live uh, event numbers? There there aren't any in, in the United States for, for a long time, but um, do, how far do you think we are from getting back to uh, AW, I guess, sells a handful of tickets to their events. They have a few hundred people. But do you think in, in 2021, we will get back to some crowds uh, at wrestling shows and, and I guess more immediately, what do you think WrestleMania uh, looks like? Is it, is it purely a Thunderdome WrestleMania or can you see them actually putting some people in the stadium? Yeah, I, I think it'll be late in 2021, maybe at least the second half. And I think it's going to be as far as when we get back to having, you know, a weekly Raw and SmackDown or Dynamite for that matter in, in different arenas. Yeah. I think that will be, at the, at the earliest, the second half of the year. And I think it's, it's just down to when, when enough people take the vaccine, and hopefully they do. Uh, I, I think that's what it's going to take is, is there needs to be one way or another herd immunity in the country for that to be possible and to be safe and to be allowed in, in various states. Um, I, I think Wrestle Kingdom was allowed to happen the way it did because the, the prevalence of COVID in Japan compared to the U.S. is just dramatically different. Um, the data that I've seen about, you know, uh, deaths over time. Japan is now at their all-time high. I think things are not quite at the all-time high in Tokyo, which is where Russell Kingdom was. Um, but if you look at the, the prevalence of death in the United States, it's something like 14 times higher. Um, it's just tremendously higher in, in the United States, which you know, makes me think that prevalence of COVID it, itself must be much, much higher in the United States. So we've got a long, long way to go compared to Japan. And you look, look at even those crowds in the Tokyo Dome. Everyone is wearing masks. They're still socially distanced and they're not allowed to cheer. Yeah, I, believe, I, believe, I believe the guidelines say cheering your hearts and clapping only. Um, <laughs> Great. Yeah, there's, there's only clapping. And uh, AEW, as you mentioned, is, done, uh, is selling tickets every week at, at Daly's Place. I think they did 1,000 for the Brody Lee show. Um, so I think WrestleMania, I think W would like to do something. I mean, obviously, they would like to do something as soon as possible. I think they would like to do an outdoor WrestleMania uh, somewhere, maybe at Raymond James Stadium. I think the hang-up is uh, whether Raymond James Stadium would allow that. Uh, I think Florida, the, the government will allow it, but whether the, the facility, uh, and I don't, I don't know what the legal you know, issues would be and what the, the liability would be. And I think, uh, I think WWE and maybe Vince in particular have some hang-ups about maybe not wanting to have a bunch of fans on TV without masks or with masks on. 
I think you would prefer fans to, to, to be uh, not having masks. Yeah. Which I think that kind of speaks to Vince's uh, concern and how seriously he takes COVID. But uh, yeah, I think it'll be yeah second half of the year before we see really things back to normal. We, we seem to be taking baby steps in that direction, though. I mean, even, even in New York, um, here where uh, the the governor certainly ha- has tried to uh, sort of lead the fight and and uh, uh, take the precautions that are necessary, they're talking about selling six thousand tickets to uh, a Buffalo Bills game. You know, yeah. now the, I guess the idea is um, test everybody ahead of time. Um, you know, it, it does make me wonder whether uh, WWE and Vince McMahon, always wanting to be at, at the forefront uh, of these things, don't try to figure out a way to be the first, right, f- for WrestleMania. And, um, you know, not not 50,000 people or even 30,000 people, but can they get 5,000 people in a Raymond James Stadium? Something that, that uh, you know, could, could guarantee... Uh, some safe social distance at, at, at 5,000, that would be, you know, a relatively small percentage of uh, a big building, but you could probably make it look decent on TV. You'd, you'd have some, some live atmosphere. It's amazing what even a handful of fans, uh, uh, the difference they can make as we've seen with AEW with just a few hundred fans, it is completely different than having nobody there. Right. So yeah. I, I, almost, I wonder what the demand is is for a WrestleMania. Like, if there's the issue would be international, right? I mean, you could right because WrestleMania is, is so often a traveling crowd. As with a Buffalo Bills playoff game, we haven't had yeah. playoffs in, in decades, so there's a huge demand for it. But it's so much of a traveling crowd for WrestleMania. Are there five thousand people in the Florida area, or are people they, comfortable they enough with yeah. doing it? Other question would be, I guess, what you would charge. I mean, if if you're only selling a small fraction of um, the capacity. Does yeah. each ticket end up costing, you know, five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, and upward? I don't doubt that they could do it. Um, WrestleMania uh, aside, um, and I guess I was Brian uh, uh, this. Do you worry that house shows? You know, there, there's so many things that that I think have changed. Um, you know, uh, in in my day job, I, I uh, look at transportation a lot and public transportation, and um, what one phenomenon you've seen on public transportation is obviously ridership went way, way down throughout the pandemic. And at first, I think these public transportation providers were thinking, well, we'll ride out this pandemic and then the riders come back to us. And now it's clear that a lot of those riders are gone for good, right? Um, they, they discovered life without commuting, that they could do their jobs from home, that that there is another way to do this. And I sort of wondered that also um, as far as wrestling as a live event business. And the reality is um, WWE was was struggling with live events, house shows for a, a long, long time. Um, they, they put them uh, aside uh, totally during uh, the pandemic and you saw them uh, record their, their biggest uh, uh, quarter uh, for profits. Um, so do, do you wonder, do you worry that live events are gone for good uh, outside of a Raw, a pay-per-view, a SmackDown, but basically how shows are done? I think that would be a terrible mistake if they did that. And I, I think I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, but it's sort of like, yes, of course, you know, the house show business is not one of their major streams of revenue. But here's the thing. One, one of the things about the WWE product, you know, we always say the biggest issue, and I would say this, is not with talent, it's not with the performers, it's with the creative. Now, 
The reason I say that is because in the ring, I still believe, could because I work there and I'm brainwashed, that they have the most polished professional approach to how to work in the ring. And you see it in the matches they put together. I still enjoy most of their matches more than I enjoy watching an AEW match, even though I enjoy AEW Dynamite more as an overall show because they're polished. They really are good at what they, they do and they're trained really well. And the reason, a big reason why they get so good is because they're on the road. They're working constantly more than any other company is working. They're out there like five times a week, maybe sometimes six times a week, staying sharp. You know, it's like when when you when you had vaudeville acts go on the road, right? These were these people were so good at what they did because they did it every single night. And I'm not saying that Vince was right to send down people like Keith Lee and Otis and all that other thing. And that, you know, I don't think that was warranted. But I will say, devil's advocate, that one of the reasons why maybe there may be a perceived slippage in the way some people are working is because they're not working as often. And if you get because because now they're basically a TV company. And if, if you if you cut out house shows completely, I really think that that polish is going to seriously erode because I, I think even more than the business, even more than, you know, the tickets, that is the number one function of house shows today is getting talent in front of a crowd, getting them comfortable, get keeping them sharp, working things out, all that kind of stuff. And if you eliminate house shows, I, I just really think, I think the product suffers. So then you're going to have creative suffering and you're going to have the actual work suffering at the same time. And I just think that would be a tremendous mistake. Yeah. And that's what's great about house shows. If, if you go to them is see, seeing them work out some of the stuff. I remember back in 2004, I, uh, I drove up to, to Poughkeepsie. It's the only time I went to the, the Mid Hudson Civic Center um, for a house show. And it was a few nights before WrestleMania, which I was also going to because it's Madison Square Garden. And they did advertise any kind of lineup for um, for Poughkeepsie. And the main event was uh, turned out to be Chris Benoit versus Triple H versus Shawn Michaels in a triple threat match. The main event of WrestleMania, uh, they did in front of whatever it was, 1,200 fans a couple nights earlier. And, and I was there for it. Um, so I got to see that match uh, twice. So uh, a real thrill. But whether they should or they shouldn't, uh, uh, Brandon, and, and and we'll wrap up here uh, soon. Um, do you think that's the direction they're going? I mean, do you think just inevitably, j- just from a business decision, um, ha- how shows are an endangered species? I think so. I think if I were to predict, I, I think we're going to see a post-COVID you know, future where there are very few North American house shows. Maybe there's some international house shows that are more profitable. Um, maybe there's a holiday tour in December. They usually do very good business around, around Christmas. Um, but for the last few years, and I think this is ultimately, this is ultimately down to creative too, is they haven't drawn uh, very good attendances because right? I think the product on TV isn't very good in the overall popularity of the product does decline. But um, attendance has declined at house shows. And uh, if you look at the, the quarterly breakdowns that they do publish, uh, the live event division, except for the WrestleMania quarter, I think it was for five consecutive quarters before COVID lost money. So they're losing money by running shows. So there's, there's, you know, profitability to gain by probably by running fewer house shows. Um, but as, as Brian mentioned, there are, there is a value to running house shows. One is that, as, as Brian mentioned, that you, you get to, you have your wrestlers wrestle a lot and, and that probably makes them better wrestlers. Um, you go to a, go to these towns all over the country and all over the world and you promote professional wrestling or you promote WWE, I should say, 
you promote WWE and all these talents. There's probably a marketing value to that. Uh, you give these people all these uh, experiences, putting smiles on people's faces, as they say. Um, but, I, but I think there's some benefits to stopping running house shows as well. Um, you put less wear and tear on your wrestlers, so you really need to appear on television and on pay-per-view, which drives the majority of your revenue. Um, I think there's probably some morale to be gained by having people stay home more often and not have to spend as much time on the road and not in traveling. Um, and I think there's a, now that there's a, another bad thing in there for wrestlers is that they don't get the house show fees. They're independent contractors. They get paid yep. when they wrestle besides the guaranteed downside that they get. Um, but hopefully with uh, the increased competition in, in, in among, among wrestling brands for various, you know, for wrestlers, uh, I think that already has resulted in an increase in salaries for wrestlers. So hopefully that's getting made up for in, in, in that sense. But um, yeah, I would, I would guess that there's going to be fewer house shows uh, after COVID just because of the, the financial gains that they'll have to make because of it. And uh, this is a, a business that relies more so on media revenues than it does on live events. E even when you count in the merchandise revenue that they make uh, in the venue merch, uh, it doesn't offset the, the money that they're losing, at least in, in this era, on, on running live events. Yeah, yeah. You, you hear Eric Bischoff talk about that a lot when he um, took over WCW. That was one of the, the big changes he made right off the bat. And, and yeah. they were just hemorrhaging money at the time um, running shows. And, and he said that before he got there, the strategy was um, run more of them. You know, if, if we're, we're not making a lot on one, run more. And they just end up losing more and more money with every house show they ran. So he came in and just cut out house shows. And it wasn't a popular decision, but but for the bottom line, um, it, it made a big difference. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I worry that, um, well, me being in the New York area, I'll probably, uh, have more opportunity than most to see, uh, WWE live, but I imagine there are a lot of pockets of the country that, uh, may have gotten their, their last house show. And, um, in some areas that, you know, they, they don't go to very often for, for TV, they might've gotten their last WWE live event for, uh, a very, very long time. Uh, all right. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, um, uh, Brian, do you, Brian, you want to add something? No, I was just going to say, forget about the White Plains Convention Center. <laughs> you know, but I don't know because the, it, you know, New York is their base. I, I think I love that place. Have, uh, it is great. Yeah, that's one of the. I, I only in the last um, ten years or so that I start attending shows there, and it's a blast. Yeah, it's yeah. very much like um, uh, a time machine. You know, I was backstage there when I was working there only one time, and I swear it is. I felt like I walked out of a time machine and I, and it was like the sixties or something. And I'm backstage at, at, at a WWWF show somewhere, you know, it was, it was really cool. But yeah, yeah. I mean, like a lot of the places that are not TV friendly and things like that, uh, people are going to miss out on shows for sure. That's the reality of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. In New York, we're, we're about that. Another arena, even closer to me over at uh, Belmont park um, by, by the end of, of this year. So uh, there's like this, you know, between Nassau Coliseum and now Belmont and Barclays and Madison Square, Gar Square Garden, and not even counting, you know, the, the football stadiums and the baseball stadiums, there's no shortage of places to go. Um, and, and WWE would regularly run pretty much all of them. Um, all right, uh, uh, Brandon, uh, uh, want to plug uh, Wrestlenomics, uh, your, your your website, uh, the podcast? Sure, I, I do the Wrestlenomics radio podcast that comes out usually every Saturday morning. Uh, you can find that just by searching for Russell Monks in your podcast app. Uh, I have a blog 
wrestlenomics.com. There's a lot of resources and data there, but also my written articles. Uh, you can support the Patreon, patreon.com slash wrestlenomics. You can follow wrestlenomics on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. Yes, you guys do great work over there. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Brian. Oh, real quick, uh, oh, why don't you plug your, your Twitter and, and uh, you're closer to finishing your, your book? Yes, I am. I'm getting perilously close. Uh, I'm I'm actually getting closer to the word count limit than I am to the time limit, <laughs> which is a good problem to have, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I expect to be done with the writing in March and then it's going to be, you know, a few months of just getting photos together, getting it laid out and everything like that. And I'm hoping it should be published probably by about a year from now will actually be out on the market. But yeah, um, on Twitter, I am Brian R. Solomon. So you can go there and I'm constantly updating about the book and plugging stuff and lots of old school wrestling stuff on there too. So yeah. Brian, and the book is a, a biography of the original Sheik. Oh God. Yeah. I'm sorry. I feel like I've talked <laughs> about it before here. What a terrible plugger I am. <laughs> so, so the book is called, it's, it's called blood and fire. And it is the first biography ever written about the original uh, chic. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I never plug my own uh, Twitter, but it is what is it? Alcastle PWI, I think. I don't use it very much. Uh, but anyhow, uh, check it out. Guys, thanks so much. Uh, we'll do this again soon. Thanks everybody for listening. And, uh,